0: To save them. Soon after Jesus was resurrected, there were two men walking along a road. And as they walked, their minds were spinning. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one promised from God. But then he was crucified. And the Messiah can't die, right? Especially in the way that Jesus died. It didn't make any sense to them. And then they had heard some rumors along the way that, that Jesus was alive. But still, it didn't make sense. Their minds were spinning. They were all confused. And as they were walking along this road, a man came up and joined them in their journey. It was actually Jesus, although they did not recognize him at the time. He asked them what they were talking about, and they told him, and they had some conversations. And then Luke 24, 27 records that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself so in that conversation jesus was saying that the entire bible points to jesus now for the past five months we've been studying the book of hebrews and i would say that hebrews is the premier book in the entire bible for pointing to how the old testament all points to and is fulfilled by jesus And today we're going to be wrapping up our study of Hebrews. So I invite you to turn in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. If you did not bring a Bible but would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1214. Now the title of the series is that Jesus is better. Throughout the series in the book of Hebrews, we've seen how Jesus is better than so much that occurs in the Old Testament, especially through the Jewish forms of worship. Jesus is better is better. We've also talked about how Jesus is better than so much of what the world has to offer us today. Jesus is better. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dig into this final section of Hebrews. Our Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you especially for the book of Hebrews. It's a book that can seem kind of obscure, kind of confusing, but at the same time, Lord, we thank you for the beauty of what you've it recorded in Hebrews for us to see the beauty and supremacy of Jesus. And I pray that today, as we close up this study of this book, that you will help us to understand this passage, to apply it to our lives, and to live out the truth that Jesus is better so that he will be praised and glorified in us and through us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So let's see how the book of Hebrews ends. I'm going to read, picking up in chapter 13, verse 18. The author says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. And that is how the book of Hebrews concludes. Now Hebrews is a letter that sounds like a sermon until the final eight verses. And then those final eight verses, it sounds like a typical letter that you'd read in the Bible from people like Paul or Peter or James (coughs) or John. Now let me walk through these final verses briefly for us. It says in verses 18 and 19 that the author asks for prayer. This was very typical for letter writers back then to do. Jumping down to verse 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now back then in Jewish synagogues, this phrase, word of exhortation, described a a sermon or a homily, which shows that Hebrews really was intended to sound like a sermon. But at the same time, at the end of the book, it does sound like a letter. But he says, bear with my word of exhortation. So in the book of Hebrews, he was exhorting his listeners to not abandon Jesus. He's saying, bear with me. Receive what I have to say. Don't ignore it. Instead, internalize it. Apply it. Stay faithful to Jesus. Now moving on to verse 23. It gives an update on Timothy, who was a prominent leader in the early church. In verse 24, he sends some greetings, which again was very typical in ancient letter writing. And then verse 25 says, Grace be with you all. This is a classic way back then for Christians to greet one another. Grace be with you. So Hebrews, it sounds like a sermon until you get to the final eight verses, and then it sounds like a typical letter from back then. Now for the rest of the time, I want to focus us on verses twenty. And 21, I skipped over them in my, my description just a minute ago. But these two verses that we're going to focus the rest of our time on are a benediction. And a benediction is a prayer for blessing upon the people to whom, in this case, are being written to. It's praying for their blessing. And the benediction starts by saying, Now may the God of peace I'm going to come back to that God of Peace phrase in just a moment. But one thing I want to point out as we get into this benediction is that it's kind of like a grand finale where the author is pulling together all kinds of themes from throughout Hebrews, putting them together in this prayer and then applying them to his readers. So just keep that in mind as we're going through because it's going to pull in a lot of themes that we've been looking at over the last few months. But it starts out saying, Now may the God of Peace And this shows that God stands above the turmoil that we face on earth and gives a wholeness and calm that this world cannot match. The God of peace. This reminds me of the beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul describes God as, quote, "...the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles." So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a situation where people are struggling. And he picks out a couple of descriptions, characteristics of God, that will comfort them. He, He describes God as the God of compassion, the God of comfort. And he does that as a way to remind them that God cares, that God's in control, that God can be a source of comfort and compassion for them through their struggles. And the same type of thing is happening in Hebrews 13. It's written that Jewish Christians who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. They were ostracized from the local synagogue. Some of them were cut off from family and from friends. Some of them were being imprisoned for their faith in Christ. Some of them had property confiscated because they were Christians. You can imagine the stress that was causing them. And so Paul, or not Paul, but the author of Hebrews, reminds them: God is a God of peace. He wants to give you peace but all this is a reminder for us of the fact that nowhere in the bible does it say that when we become a follower of christ life is going to get easier in fact when we follow jesus life may actually get harder But in this context of struggling that they're facing that we may be facing it's great to remember that god is a god of peace now for those jewish christians when they heard that God is a God of peace, they probably would have thought of the concept of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, a Hebrew concept that is frequently translated as peace, but it's richer than our word for peace. It means a vitality, a wholeness, a completeness. So it shows that God stands above the turmoil we face on earth and gives a wholeness and a calm that this world cannot match. So it says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And this next phrase about bringing from the dead the Lord Jesus points to the centerpiece of God's redemptive work, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Shalom requires peace with God. And on our own, there is no peace with God because of our sins. Sin separates us from God. Now, the Jews, they perform sacrifices and rituals in order to try to atone for their sin. But in effect, as Hebrews has made clear, all those sacrifices, all those rituals they did in the temple were insufficient to pay the debt they owed for sin. It's kind of like in today's terms, in financial terms, it's kind of like you have a massive credit card bill. And the credit card company will get you, let you get away for a while with only making minimum payments. And minimum payments will keep the creditors off your back for a while, but the minimum payments will never actually pay for the debt itself. And that's essentially what those sacrifices were like in the Old Testament. Yeah, they could kind of cover over sin just temporarily, just a little bit. But they left the deep debt of sin unpaid for. That's, that's one of the reasons why Jesus is better. Jesus' death paid the full penalty for our sins. No further payment is needed. And then Jesus' resurrection shows that God accepted Jesus' payment that he made for our sins. Continuing that financial analogy, it's kind of like Jesus wrote out a massive check to pay the debt for sin that the entire world owed. But Jesus' resurrection showed the check cleared. The check cleared. Now there are many misconceptions out there about Christianity, about what Christianity is really all about. You know, some people think Christianity is just about doing good works. Some people think Christianity is just about loving people or or going to church. And to be sure, those are part of Christianity, but those are more of the response to Jesus rather than what merits us favor in God's eyes. We must never forget that the centerpiece of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And these display God's love as well as God's power. Now, moving on through this grand finale of a benediction, we're going to see the care of God that's displayed in the fact that Jesus is the greatest shepherd ever. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, shepherding is one of the main metaphors in scripture to describe the relationship between God and people. I mean, think of Psalm 23. One of the most famous, most beloved passages of Scripture, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, those are tools of shepherds. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God cares for his people like a shepherd cares for his or her sheep. Now, down through the years, God assigned religious leaders to be shepherds over his people as basically under-shepherds with God as the great shepherd. But repeatedly in the Old Testament, we see the indictment that people were wandering like sheep without a shepherd. Those religious leaders were failing over and over and over to guide and lead and shepherd God's people the way God intended. But in John 10, Jesus came along and said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And I laid down my life for the sheep. This is why Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now in the Old Testament, to be sure, some of the leaders were you know, reasonably or quite good shepherds representing God to the people. For instance, Psalm 77 verse 20 says that God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. that's talking about the Exodus, how Moses in that, in that situation serves as a good shepherd, leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Or Ezekiel 34:23, God says, "I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd." And so people like Moses and and David were good shepherds overall. But Jesus is better, as Hebrews has been saying over and over and over. He's the greatest shepherd because he is God. Now, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So this is still kind of like this grand finale, pulling in these themes from throughout Hebrews And now we're focusing on this phrase that says, by the blood of the eternal covenant, it shows that Jesus secured an eternal covenant that never needs updating and can never be threatened. Now, a covenant is a term we don't use much in today's world. It's a commitment between two parties that is both legal and loving. It's kind of like a marriage commitment. It is even more binding. And down through the years, God has made covenants with people, And now, through Jesus, he has instituted a new covenant. Now, the process of creating a covenant back then would seem very strange to us today. Now, today, if we're going to make a contract with someone or even, you know, a marriage covenant, you sign a piece of paper, you may have a notary notarize it. But back then, the paper wasn't very common. Besides, most people were illiterate. There weren't notaries. And so they would go through symbolic rituals in order to complete contracts or covenants. And the covenant had a very strange ritual, if we look at it from today's eyes. They would take an uh, an animal or a few animals, and they would cut those animals in half. And they would lay the two halves on the ground a few feet apart from each other. And then the people, committing themselves to one another in the covenant, would walk between those two halves of the animals that had been butchered. That was essentially like saying, I do in a wedding. Two parties committing themselves to one another in a covenant. And part of the symbolism of the butchered animal was essentially those covenanting themselves to one another saying, may the same happen to me as happened to those animals if I fail to uphold my end of this covenant. Now as we look at the new covenant that God established through Jesus, he was the one who was sacrificed in order to establish the covenant. He was the one who shed his blood, who makes a way for us to have a relationship with God. It's by the blood of the eternal covenant. And it's important to recognize the adjective this in eternal covenant. It shows that Jesus' work on the cross will never need updating. You will never be threatened because it is finished. This is why, for instance, Hebrews seven twenty-two says that Jesus is the mediator. Of a better covenant, Hebrews five nine says that Jesus gives us eternal salvation. Nine twelve says that His shed blood accomplished eternal redemption. Chapter nine verses fourteen and fifteen says Jesus has secured for us an eternal inheritance that is secured through the eternal Spirit. You hear how there's, there's this continuation, the eternality, the secure nature of what Jesus accomplished. It will never need to be updated. And it can never be threatened. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now in our world, we may worry at times about what's happening around us in society or what's happening in our lives. You know, sometimes we maybe get worried that the gospel is being threatened. But the reality is the gospel itself cannot be threatened. It is secure. Jesus has established an eternal covenant and now we're going to move to the final part of this benediction where it actually gets to the application where it actually gets to what he's actually praying because everything up to this point this benediction has kind of been like that grand finale where the author is just pulling in themes that have been relevant from throughout hebrews and now he gets to the actual actual application what he's asking god for and he says and it shows that god wants to equip us to do his will It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So let's go back for just a moment. We're going to get in a minute to this idea of God equipping us. But let's go back for a moment to the idea, the metaphor of us being sheep and God being the shepherd. A shepherd wants his sheep to thrive. And the reality is for sheep to thrive, they typically need a shepherd because sheep on their own are quite helpless. On their own, the sheep have no way of defending themselves. They're frequently going to struggle even to find food and water on their own. They they frankly aren't very smart. I think back to when I was growing up. My grandparents had a farm, and one of the things on that farm were sheep. Sheep. I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, my grandpa kind of got an old car out there in the, in the barn lot running for me. And I was staying with him for a week in the winter. And he let me drive that car around the pasture just by myself. It was a lot of fun. You can imagine 10 or 11-year-old driving a car in a pasture. Um, but while I was out there driving in the pasture one day, I saw a sheep laying under a tree by itself. And I had recalled that, that my grandpa was missing a sheep He'd been out there. He's searching for the sheep, but he couldn't find the sheep. He figured it died somewhere, maybe a coyote or someone came and carried it off. But there was a sheep out there under that tree, and so I went and told my grandpa. He went out there and saw it was a the sheep. They had been missing for a couple days. And what struck me about this is that this was only about 150 yards from the barn. The barn, where the rest of the sheep are, that's warm, that is safe, was in clear view. There was nothing between where that sheep was and the barn. There were no trees even between that sheep and the barn. The sheep was laying under a tree. It was on the edge of the pasture. But there was nothing obscuring the view to the barn. But the sheep didn't even recognize that the barn is the safe place where it should go. It didn't recognize that's the place where it came from. A sheep needs a shepherd or a farmer to come take care of it. That's what my grandpa did. The sheep was not hurt or sick in any way. It just got lost. Need needed help finding its way home. You know, we are prone to wandering like sheep. Like sheep, we can feel buffeted and helpless at times in our lives. I mean, how often do we find our, find our heads spinning because of what's happening in our lives or what's happening around us? We need a shepherd, just like sheep need a shepherd. I mean, the first century Jewish Christians, they certainly had their heads spinning, And that's one of the reasons why the author in Hebrews points them to Jesus as the great shepherd. Because they need a shepherd, we need a shepherd. And the author of Hebrews prays that God will, quote, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now again, sheep are incredibly limited. The thing is, God created us in His image. We are not limited in the same ways that sheep are. Sure, we wander like sheep. Yes, sometimes we don't make the greatest decisions. But we have so much more potential than sheep do. And God wants to do a transformational work in us to conform us to be more like Jesus. He wants to transform us from the inside out so that we become more like Jesus and represent Jesus faithfully to the world around us. And he says, it says that He will equip you with everything good to do His will. I think of the role of Scripture. How the Bible is God's Word showing us what the will of God is. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He says He will equip us with everything good to do His will. He gives us the Holy Spirit so it's not just by our own power and strength that we try to do God's will. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. The first work the Holy Spirit wants to do is in us. I think of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are character qualities that God wants to work in us, to transform us, to make us new. Then he wants to empower us by the Holy Spirit so he works through us. In the world around us and the people around us to draw more people to Christ so that we'll be representatives of his kingdom so that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to equip us. And the author of Hebrews prays for his listeners back there in the first century. I know this is still God's heart for us today that he will equip us. And so this is a prayer from Hebrews 13 that we can pray for ourselves. It's also a commissioning. That the the author of Hebrews is giving to his listeners beginning, it translates over to us as well. That we will internalize the truth that Jesus is better, and then that we will live out that truth in our lives. Now we've talked a lot today about what Jesus has accomplished, especially through His death and resurrection. And to help us remember the significance of that, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now I recognize kind of like that idea of how you uh, how you did the covenant back then, how you created the covenant. Some of the aspects of the Lord's Supper can be kind of odd, but it's a symbolic reminder, a visual, a tactile reminder of what Jesus did for us, to remind us of the new covenant that was established through the blood of Christ. Jesus is a shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Remember, his death on the cross and payment for our sins was central we can experience the benefits of his death of him dying in our place taking our sin penalty if we come to faith in him if you're someone who is trusting in jesus alone for your salvation you're welcome to join with us this morning in the lord's supper if you did not receive a communion kit on your way in and would like one they are available in the back you can get you can get up and get one or we'll raise your hand and an usher will bring one to you again as you heard we do have gluten-free communion kits as well now uh, the, the two different types of kits are open differently. The non, non-gluten-free, the traditional ones, have two layers on top. The, the clear layer of plastic releases the bread, and then the, the colored layer releases the juice. The gluten-free uh, option is open differently. You can figure that out. The wafer opens from the bottom. That's the main difference. But the bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the cup represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Because Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's by the blood of the eternal covenant that we are welcomed confidently into God's presence. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we are welcomed confidently if we are trusting in Christ. So I invite you now, if you're partaking in communion, to release the wafer or to take the bread if you are partaking at home. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me now release the juice. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We get to celebrate these truths. That Jesus died, that Jesus was resurrected, And by those two acts, he accomplished for us a covenant with God that we can be welcomed confidently in his presence. Nothing else can open that door to God. No amount of good works, no amount of religious activities, but Jesus alone has accomplished that. And it shows that Jesus is better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you because you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You're God who stepped off your heavenly throne to come into this world. You came ultimately to teach, but then even more so to go to the cross and pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. It was a gift that we did not earn, that we cannot deserve. But again, we say thank you. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will recognize that you do equip us by your word and by your spirit to live the way that you call us to live, to glorify you. And I pray that you will be glorified in us and through us, that you will continue to do a transforming work in us, ultimately for the praise of your glory, and that the world will see through us as individuals and as a congregation and through the church throughout the globe that Jesus is better. Amen.